1: Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get
0: $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com
1: for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
0: Hello, everyone. I had the pleasure recently of being interviewed by Marco Capelli, the charming and excellent host of the Story d'Italia podcast, the podcast telling you the story of the history of Italy in Italian. The interview is, of course, in English, and we talk about the relationship between Byzantium and Italy, and that is what's in today's episode. If you have any friends in Italy, or uh, Italian friends you've made elsewhere, please do tell them about Story d'Italia. Not only is it an excellent podcast, but It's nice to be able to recommend a show in another language. I've heard from uh, many non-native English speakers that they have to rely on English language podcasts to cover their hobby or area of interest, so it's nice to be able to say that I can vouch for a show even though I can't listen to every episode. Uh, Marco is an excellent host. He does an excellent job. I have met him in person, and I thoroughly recommend his work. Now, here's the interview.
1: Salute, salve, and welcome to the history of Italy, in this case in English, of course. It's not the first time, actually, Robin. Um, I have uh, the great privilege to have one of the mm, podcasters that has been, for me, the biggest inspiration in starting podcasting and also in the way he does uh, history podcasting. So I'm a great fan of Robin Pearson. Thank you so much, Robin, for being here. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's 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 really a pleasure. I would like to say um, as many others I started with um, uh, with the history of Rome and then I went straight uh, through to the history of Byzantium and for me, it's really the podcast that made me choose to um, to start podcasting and the way you do the research, the way, uh, you are very careful of what you say and how you say it, but at the same time making the history compelling. This is for me like a, a polar star, and I and and I really appreciate for uh, you for all the work that you have done in the past few years. And I can't wait to uh, know more about the Fourth Crusade when you get there, and uh, and all the last centuries of Byzantium. And then I know you have a plan to go back, right?
0: that's that's certainly the the leading idea to go back to the <laughs>
1: earlier empire to the early Empire and then do uh, the century by century analysis you know I also do a century by century you know I, I, I follow your format I would like to say that <laughs> nice so um Robin just to introduce you to my listeners not all of them may be um, familiar with your work uh, can you tell us how you got into podcasting and Maybe also what was the single most rewarding thing that so far uh, that happened to you because of podcasting?
0: Um, well, I uh, I started listening to podcasts quite early. I don't know, 2005 maybe, um, mm-hmm. with things I loved when people first started saying, okay, we're going to have discussions on audio now as well. And I really loved them and I stood at um the the edinburgh festival it was like a big comedy and arts festival in scotland in 2007 and i was working with my dad and i was handing out flyers for a week and so i just had my headphones in listening to podcasts all day every day and by and uh, this was when lost was the big tv show sensation (laughs) and by the end of that i just thought i would love to do a podcast about lost so i did and that led on to more tv podcasts um And it's funny, you saying I choose my words carefully with history, that's been my lesson in podcasting, that uh, when I talked about TV, I turned off too many people, whereas with history, (gasps) I'm very careful, and that seems to work. (laughs) Um, So yeah, and uh, like you, I was inspired by Mike Duncan, uh, the History of Rome podcast. You know, I'd always been interested in the Romans, but by the time you read a book about the length of the empire, you get to the end. And you can't remember what was happening 200 years before because there's so much to take in. And so his step by step by step and reminding you this is like that thing that happened 100 years ago and that's going to happen again in 100 years really held my hand and walked me through it. And when he finished, I emailed him and said, don't, you know, don't finish, keep going. And uh, I'm sure people will pay you and, you know blah 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 and he he was clearly happy and happy to move on and it, it was about 2 weeks later i thought oh is that oh. something i could do and <laughs> yeah and i did i did think i better act quickly because i'm sure 20 other Others. people are having the yeah. same thought and there's no point in in being uh, last in the queue um so i thought i got to give this a go now and uh yeah and here we are 8 years 9 years later i think
1: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right. <laughs> Eight, nine years. Right. It's, it's, a, it's a lot of work. Uh And, you know, I, I look at you and I think, okay, that's, if I continue like this, uh, five, five, six more years <laughs> of work, <laughs> but it's, uh it's fantastic. And of course, the reason why I invited you be, besides having a, a chat with a hero of mine is that the history of, Byzantium and Italy intersects uh, so much and so often that I thought it would be be useful to talk about it. So um, maybe the the, the first thing is, uh, how important do you think was the relationship between Italy and Byzantium? How would you rank it compared to, say, the caliphate and its successor like the Turks or the Balkan states? Of course I'm here I'm saying Italy Italy is not a country at the time of Byzantium I'm talking about the various Italian powers Italian based powers
0: Yeah it's an interesting question um and I think in a way it's the most enduring relationship that a lot of the states you mentioned in comparison came and went during the thousand years of byzantine history whereas italy as a as an entity even though its own states changed endured and so i think it it it's it remains an important relationship throughout and it lasts longer than any other even though it's never priority number 1 yeah um so i'm sure your listeners have some idea but i think you can probably break that relationship down into three periods so the first period you're covering now in great detail where not only i think does constantinople think italy should still be part and is part of the roman world and therefore either we should you know get them back uh through diplomacy or th- eventually you know justinian goes military and then once the caliphate rises in the um, 7th century, the, the idea of forcing Italy back into the empire is, is off the table. And yeah. um, I, during that period, Italy is still part of the empire, the the southern Apulia and Calabria and, and Sicily for a time. So it's still important and it's still part of the whole political, ideological um, consideration that byzantium makes but obviously is a much lower priority than dealing with the caliphate or the bulgarians and then the third era i would say italy becomes at times the most important if not just just behind the turks in terms of consideration and i'm sure we'll talk about that period in in more detail as we go on but obviously the the normans and the venetians become increasingly important as both a friend and a foe and you know, I think it's telling that in 1453, it is Italians who are fighting alongside the Byzantines yeah. to save the city, and nobody else is there. And so, it that enduring relationship, it ne- you know, it never really ends, even if it's never the the primary relationship yeah. of Constantinople.
1: Yeah. It's always there. You always have either a relationship with directly with Italy as um, a master of some territories, then uh, as a trading partners and even, you know, diplomatic partners with Venice for a long time. And then there is this, (laughs) the the last centuries, it's very interesting because the relationship almost becomes, um, changes the nature uh, for the last couple of centuries where, where the, the Italian cities behave in a different way than what was going on a few centuries before. But let's not do any spoilers about that, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, so, of course, uh, Italy was not uh, unified in the Middle Ages. We already s- said so, or indeed, until 1861. So <laughs> it's, it's it's a long history of disunion. Um the main actors that Byzantium had to deal with were uh, the Lombards first, of course, then the Sicilian Arabs, then the Normans, then the papacy throughout that's another big important relationship, of course, um, and the maritime republics so of Venice, Genoa, and Pisa, among others of all of, th- of all of these, there are many actors, of course, which one do you think had the most uh, lasting impact on Byzantium? And which one was the worst enemy and or the best ally?
0: Yeah, I think I think there are three actors, as it were, uh, Italian actors who had the biggest influence on Byzantium, and that would be the papacy, the Normans, and Venice. And I think I would go for the Normans as having the biggest direct impact on Byzantine history. So I'm sure... Uh, most of your listeners know this, but obviously um, this is the 11th century. Um, Normans, at the same time, they take over England, they migrate into Italy and take over large parts of the South and then eventually Sicily um, and uh, kind of turn what had been a a peaceful um, part of Byzantium into uh, a force attacking Byzantium. So the elites of southern Italy who'd been just fighting each other or interacting with the empire uh, in a peaceful way suddenly were being used to attack the Adriatic seaboard of Byzantium. And that completely changed um, the sort of geopolitical situation for for Constantinople because they'd never had to face an organized enemy from that direction.
1: From um, that, usually was always two directions, right? From yeah. nor- northwards from the Balkans and eastwards from Caliphate or the Turks or or whatever power was there. But this is a, and suddenly worsen the situation when you have three potential side you have to worry. Probably two at the in the 11th centuries at the same time would have were already too much for the empire, but three uh, was really too much.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and the Normans, as I'm sure you'll cover in detail, change. They help change the dynamic with the papacy because the pap- the popes yes. need Norman support at times, so the popes begin to say, "Oh, well, maybe we can support the Normans in attacking fellow Christians because we need to keep them peaceful on our southern border."
1: Yeah, they are neighbors, very powerful neighbor. And in fact, it's very interesting how at the beginning, in the beginning of the 11th century, the papacy and Byzantium were collaborating to get rid of the Normans. It's when the papacy realizes that it's not going to cut it and that they have to live with the Normans that then things get really difficult with Byzantium because then it's not anymore the papacy and Byzantium are lying against the Normans. It's the Normans and the papacy against Byzantium
0: definitely and i think the normans are the first mercenary troops who see that you could peel bits of byzantium off and break them down and nobody no uh, western european mercenaries had ever done anything like that before yeah and i think that's possibly you know obviously eventually someone would have done it as byzantium grew weaker but I'm not sure other European countries would have thought like that at the time. No. I think it, the Normans had a particular culture of acquisition and aggression. Yes. So I think they are the worst enemy as well as the the most impactful <laughs> Italian actor, um, which is interesting because obviously they are, to some extent, outsiders. Um, yeah. In a way, it, Byzantines and Italians got on pretty well for long periods.
1: Yeah. Um, it's interesting you didn't yeah. say Venice obviously. that's mm. that's the fol- necessary follow up, sorry Robin, because yeah. of course we all know what happens in 1204. Uh, it's not only Venice obviously, but Venice does play a huge role in, in and everybody I think everybody knows this story. We're talking about the fourth Crusade and uh, the very first sack of Constantinople. So but you didn't mention Venice as the worst enemy in that sense i no. think i know why but i want you to say it.
0: <laughs> well um i think it's it's just mainly because of the i think the normans lead the way i think the normans change the culture and of course venice is brought in by byzantium to fight against the normans so it, it's ironic as, as you're suggesting that v- the venetians are in a way the best allies they're they're best allies long before 1204 and they they remain good allies afterward to some extent yeah. but of course we can't overlook the fact that it is the venetian ships that bring the fourth crusaders to sack constantinople so i mean i you know there it is ironic saying they're the best italian ally but they're certainly the ones who did the most direct uh good for byzantium but what were you thinking there
1: yeah no no but i agree with you in the sense that if you look at the flowing of history without the Normans, it's hard to think another um, European power uh, really turning aggressive on the empire. Um, Western powers just didn't think about the empire as a prey for centuries and centuries and centuries. And even when it grew weaker. So it's, uh, I, I agree with you, uh, But I I can see how on the surface, because there is a lot of animosity also against the Venetians for what they did at the Fourth Crusade, uh, you know, quite justified. But it's true that that relationship, uh, barred that period of time, it was usually very important and very beneficial to Byzantium for a very long time. I mean, the Venetians, uh, you know, I read a, a history book from from a Venetian historian and he's saying it's 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 incorrect to say that Venice uh, was dominated by Byzantium uh, during the first centuries. It was a Byzantine city. So uh, in in that sense, and the birth of Venice is Byzantium and it, it remained interconnected with Byzantium until the 11th century in some shape and form, if, of course, there's no, in medieval history, there's no such thing as clear-cut independence or clear-cut, uh, it, it's always a ranking of powers, right? But, uh, so the, uh, so Venice was sort of a vassal state for a while, then it became kind of uh, uh, allied, but of course, an equal ally. And then it becomes an equal ally, let's say the equal alliance in the 11th century because of the threat of the Normans, which was a big threat for both. So I, I do agree about that. Uh, eventually, when the empire and Venice patched up, uh, actually it was, again, you could say was beneficial relationship with Venice and the other maritime republics like Genoa uh, Although it 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 was also a race to 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 peel off a little bit pieces of the of the empire when they had the chance. So it's a very complex relationship that it's it's not easy um, easily uh, explainable with just one phrase. I think in a way it's a testament to to the to how deep uh, the relationship was that it's not possible to do so.
0: Yeah. And I mean, not not to go into too much detail, but it, it is worth remembering that from the Venetian point of view, they were sacrificing their lives to defend Byzantium. So they felt quite strongly that they deserved a recompense. And then shortly before 1204, the Byzantines massacred a load of Venetians. It, you know, it, so, there's the, so it's that thing where, as we all deal with, your perception of, migrants in your own country is very different from the perception of the home country of those migrants and so on so you know it, it's not like everything was fine and then venice turned on byzantium there was
1: a lot of back and forth yeah a lot of back and, yeah. Forth. Yeah. Of back and forth and forth uh,
0: um, I should, but should, a, sorry yeah. just to just to answer your question of course you can't overlook the papacy when you're talking about lasting impact on Byzantium, uh, yeah, I'm going to say the Normans more direct. <laughs> we should say, of course, y- you can make an argument for the papacy. They're there from the beginning to the end. They're the ones who who start commissioning crusades and so on. But yeah, I'm still going to vote for the Normans and the Venetians <laughs> in, to, to answer your question.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but the papacy—it's such an interesting story. Because I think the papacy also tried to remove the fact that they, they there was such a thing as the Byzantine papacy, where when they were one of the most important bishopric of the empire, and that was it. <laughs> so, so there is a lot of red coning history going on there. I think, um, but it is very interesting um, to see. In a way, it surprises me how long it more than. when it breaks up finally with the great schism but it surprised me knowing the story of all the small little schism in the way it surprises me that the churches remained in communion for so long but we'll get into that (laughs) so um, I will make you do like a big jump back I know you are now in in, um, in the 12th century but uh, I want to look you to look back at the Lombards, which, of course, is a, towards the beginning of your podcast. Um, so, the Lombards, of course, came in when the empire was still a great uh, um, power in the Mediterranean Sea, uh, still before the the arrival of the Arabs that changed everything. So, why do you think that Byzantium didn't spend more effort? Uh, in the late 6th century, um, to get rid of the Lombards.
0: I think this is probably um, uh, probably the, the view from Constantinople, I think, was usually that mounting a campaign in Italy was too expensive and too difficult. It's only because of Justinian that we think oh they they could and should and would campaign in Italy um, that before Justinian you know uh, Procopius tells us that the advisors said you can't go to Africa, it's too expensive and so on and I'm sure he they would have said the same about going to Italy. once the Lombards invade, I think probably, People were just throwing their hands up like, well, we can't send more armies back because already the the Balkans, the, the trickle of um, Slavic migration had already begun. And the yeah. armies there were saying, we, we can't catch everyone, you know, and people just disappear into mountains and forests and we can't catch them. And so I think for the emperors after Justinian, the idea of sending armies to fight the Lombards was just too expensive and too difficult um as you know italy is uh, dotted with beautiful hilltop towns and so unless you're gonna good walls yeah exactly walls. so unless you're gonna send big armies in to starve everyone out you're gonna be there for years and once the the big persian wars start in the 570s 580s there's no chance that they'll yeah. come back um I mean, I, I think as you will cover at some point, Constans Second. so this is yeah. Heraclius' grandson, does briefly attempt to fight in Italy. Maybe if he'd won, if he'd found the Lombards were easy to beat, that would have changed history. But I still doubt it because by that point the Arabs had arrived and troops were needed in Anatolia. And yeah, his, his idea yeah. to run the empire from Sicily or, or from Rome – probably would never have worked so yeah yeah
1: even if he won probably his son would have gone back to constantinople so i i doubt that would have changed it's exactly. though you know it's a very unknown fact that a roman emperor actually came back in the 7th century to fight yeah. in italy and briefly held court briefly for several years held court in syracuse I, you know, I was talking to people in Syracuse, and I was saying that to them, and saying, "What, what, 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 what you're saying? The the, the 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 Byzantine emperor here?" <laughs> and they had absolutely, you know, people in Syracuse that are interested into history. Yes. I Should add, you know, so, of, so course. of course, you know, if you ask someone from the street, it's normal. But <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> but,
0: um, but but that's but great... yeah, it's a
1: very unknown fact. This this one, it's interesting. At the time of Maurice, yeah. I think. That's when maybe if Maurice had a few more years, yeah, because he had solved the problem in the East and he was solving the problem in the Balkans. So a few, I think, a few more years, and he would have probably gone to uh, a point three and and try to deal with Italy. The the fact is, um, the interesting part maybe is also that the Byzantine, anyway kept enough troops to hold on on what they had and not give it to the Lombards as much as possible it's a very slow burn uh, process that Lombard advanced because you know because of what you said you know lots of hilltops towns to conquer uh, but but they did keep so they didn't withdraw troops even in very dire situations maybe they would have not gone i guess uh, but but, but still, they kept all that effort to maintain it. So it, it seems kind of counterintuitive. Maybe this is an, a question I didn't send it to you, but this sound, sounds a little bit counterintuitive that you will do so when you are in the 7th century uh, and in the 8th century. You know, in such a dire situation.
0: I mean, I imagine after a generation or so, you're just recruiting locally yeah and that's true your taxes are just paying locals to defend your cities rather than troops you could be using somewhere else um at least the majority of them um it's it's a really interesting one i mean i think the answer it really is that justinian is the exception here and that's why yeah. if if other emperors had come through there may never no, have been no reconquest in africa or italy and it would have been all done through diplomacy and i The question that never, like I think, is always hanging out there is if, say, the Lombards had never come in, can Italy be run as a peaceful province from a distance? Or do you just get an emperor in Italy going, well, we'll just be independent then? And that's always a problem for Byzantium. They never really are able to run huge areas as their predecessors had done under one ruler there's always a feeling that well if we conquer syria or armenia or italy someone there will just set themselves up as as an alternate emperor we won't be able to run it peacefully and i suspect that's what would have happened of course belisarius you know the goth said to belisarius yeah, they, they, why don't you just they become offered emperor? Them, right yeah, yeah they offered him so there was a <laughs> Sense there, if you conquer Italy, you might as well just run it for yourself. There, you know, yeah.
1: why I, do you have to obey to some guy in Constantinople? What yeah. is gonna do? Send uh, another huge army yeah. <laughs> after this one. Uh, and and it's very interesting, you know. Also, Maurice uh, apparently had the thought, or even Tiberius, I think, had the thought to split the empire and have a, again a Western emperor. I think, probably, I don't know, it's hard to say, but probably. When you have somebody in the place running the place, it usually is able to manage the defenses better. But, but Italy, by the time of um, of uh, let's say after the uh, the the war against the Goths, was such a devastated country that it's hard to imagine it will sustain again an imperial apparatus as it was able to to sustain, uh, still under the Ostrogoths, basically was an empire. Uh, So that's another big if of history, which is impossible to, I think, to unravel. And is what if, as you said, what if it wasn't Justinian, was a more peaceful emperor? um, What if the Ostrogoths had remained a very important kingdom there? Would the, the history of European... Uh, the Western Europe being different and not not so Frankish, a lot less Frankish. Yeah, that's very difficult to say, but I would imagine so. Uh, that's kind of uh, we'll never know. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: but you, you, I mean, it's an interesting point. I don't want to go on too many tangents, but as Byzantium contracts, little bits of territory become. Their own independent kingdom, and it becomes really hard to recapture them. And Italy is yeah. a great example of that. As long as you've got a united Italy, you keep it. As soon as it breaks apart, no one reunites it till eighteen seventy. Like as you say, like yeah. it's it's you've got to keep hold if you've got a big territory. You've got to keep it unified at all times because once it breaks into smaller pieces, you may never get it back. So,
1: yeah, because yeah. then it becomes uh, everybody becomes uh, Romans, Venetians, Neapolitans, Milanese, and then <laughs> Absolutely. And believe me, it's still like that. <laughs> <laughs> there <laughs> so, you go. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we are a very young country. So, um, it's very very uh, paradoxical that it's a very old country, but it's also a very young one at the same yeah. time. Yeah. Um, in an episode about the 11th century, um, you explain why the dominions in southern Italy, even in the 11th century, so at the you know while the Normans were about to arrive, they still mattered for um, for the Byzantines. Um, why do why do you keep why do you think they kept mattering all the way to the 11th century? Because I can understand why they mattered in the 8th century still. You know, you had Venice, you had Rome, you know, you had Naples. But, you know, to clarify, in the 11th century, we are talking about, or, or Sicily, I should I should add, I know, but by the 11th century, Sicily is Arab, uh, Rome and Venice have fallen out of, of, of control. Basically, what's left is only The 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 Calabria, the southern part of Calabria, and and pieces of Apulia. So, why do you think that was still important uh, for the Byzantines? Um.
0: So yeah, it's it's a it's a good question, and I think, um, you know, in in the previous question, we sort of implied Italy is is a long way from Constantinople, and um, it's you know, it's difficult to send troops there Um, but there are there are two things i guess three things so obviously there's a practical thing is if you hold ports in italy and you hold ports in the balkans then you can control the adriatic so practically it's nice to have but of course there are lots of points on the map it's nice to have that you don't always keep Um, so the two things that i think were really important one is that it's Kind of, it's quicker to get to Sicily and the eastern part of Italy from Constantinople than it is to get to, say, the Danube or to eastern Anatolia to Cappadocia. So, you know, yeah. modern eastern Turkey, because the sea in medieval sea, times yeah. is so yeah. much quicker to travel by than land. And so there was always a sense that. Uh, you know, an enemy in Sicily could get to us in two weeks. And equally, we can get there in two weeks, whereas it's going to take four weeks, six weeks to march all the way to other places. So it felt closer um, to Constantinople than some other places. And once you get there, you find Greek speakers and Orthodox Christians. And yeah. so there are two sides to that. Obviously, you can say in a in a positive paternalistic way. These are our people. These are people who share our culture and our language. We ought to protect them. But cynically, from the other side, you could say they accept our authority. They pay their taxes without too much fuss. Um, They they might seem physically hundreds of miles away, but they're actually much more easy to rule than the Bulgarians living 50 miles yeah,
1: up the next road. door. <laughs> yeah. Literally next door.
0: And, um, you know, there were lots of uh, Greek monasteries in Sicily and southern Italy who kept a, a constant dialogue with monasteries back home. So there was always a sense that southern Italy and Sicily was part of the empire. It had always been Roman. It, would, it should still be Roman. And the people there still speak our language, both literally and metaphorically. They they look to Constantinople as a leader in in culture and and politically and you know Byzantium's a lot of Byzantium success is based on on tax gathering on having populations who see Constantinople as their natural uh, source of authority so it's easier to hand over taxes than it is to lead rebellions against them and that is so valuable because you you then have to pay far fewer troops to look after those populations and get the money out of them and so the cynical side would say you know that there are there are people there to tax so we we ne- you know we need them so yeah i think it's that combination of strategically it's a good place to hold stops people coming from the west culturally they are our people and taxation wise they they pay up so um you know we've we've got to keep one foot in italy as long as we possibly can and, um, you know, it, it, it's interesting because even after that Byzantium is kicked out of Italy, they keep trying to go back, um, you know, well up to, up to 1204. And even after 1204, uh, Italy then has a vested interest in Byzantium. So that relationship just never ends. Like that, that trade route from Sicily to Constantinople goes on and on and on, uh, all the way to 1453,
1: really. Yeah, and one other thing that I would like to add there is also that that was like a bridge to the papacy in that way. And and maybe that was not obvious to... to I, I doubt the, that people in Byzantium, um, the Romans, felt that. Here, meaning, of course, the Romans from Constantinople. Um, but, but I think they realized that was important when it was lost uh, because that's when... Uh, we have then the papacy turning on 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 Byzantium like we alluded before, when the Normans really become like that break between uh between Rome and Constantinople that probably was never there before. Though, you know, there was always some way. Uh, but that's really like breaking that link. And n- Quite at the same time, we have the break between the two uh, the, the, the two sides religiously. So I don't know if if it's caused, but but definitely didn't help to patch it up uh, the fact that they were separated at a certain point. Um. So the relationship with the papacy, and here we are, we move to the papacy. Of course, it was very complicated. The the two centuries. You know, between Justinian and the Iconoclasm, so the papacy lar- largely, I will say, under the authority of the Roman state. Um, there were fractions, but largely under the authority. However, from the eighth century, the alliance with the Franks brought the papacy in the sphere of influence of the Carolingians and their new Western Empire. So, why do you think? And this is a, something that really puzzles me. Why do you? F- why the schism didn't happen then? Because that seems also like a big breaking point, you know, when the papacy turned frank. <laughs> and, and yet it wasn't.
0: Yeah, I think I think the answer to that is that neither side wanted a schism um, at any point, really. Um, because, I mean, it depends how you define a schism, but ultimately you're moving towards saying you are here, you are heretical. And yeah, once you say that it's quite hard to then uh, row back and say, no, no, you're not. We're all on the same page. And so even though the papacy um, moves towards this alliance with Charlemagne and, and his successors, I think they are aware that that can, that relationship can also turn sour that, the Franks can become dominant in that relationship and start to dictate religious policy. And so. Yeah, I think that's important. If you turn your back on Byzantium at that point, you can't ever turn to Constantinople and say, help us against the Franks, which I think the papacy is always balancing. The people around it yeah exactly like which way are we leaning at the moment
1: the 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 most important thing is balancing because you want to remain independent right so that's always what they they tried to do
0: absolutely and so i think there's always a wariness of speaking too harshly to the uh byzantines about the various um different practices that were going on and I think it's also worth remembering that there was there was never a consistent policy i mean this is still goes on today, but I suppose now um we have sort of more permanent civil services um that communicate with each other, but each new pope and new emperor would come in with new ideas, and so sometimes someone would be more um, <clears throat> would be more aggressive in their negotiations with the other side but often the new Pope would say, I, I want to undo the bad blood of the previous relationship and make things good again, because I want your support. And I, you know, so that kept happening. Something would blow up. And, and as you said, you look at it and go, well, why didn't they fall out then? But you realize people die and people change policy. And then the next person goes, I don't want conflict. I'm trying to bed in and, and maintain my position. So I want good relations with everybody. And that kept happening. Um, And I mean, some of your listeners will know more about the the Great Schism of 1054 than others. But even the Great Schism didn't really permanently change relations. It was more like uh, an explosion from the kindling that was building up. But 50 years later, when Alexius and Pope Urban planned the First Crusade, the Byzantines say, oh, we've forgotten why we're not you know yeah. putting your name on the on in the liturgy on the diptychs exactly so um you know that, that's a, you know people's memory and people's record keeping allowed these things to get swept under the carpet i think that's part of the reason
1: the, the, this is a very interesting point that we have to imagine that the medieval world doesn't have the mastery of information that we have and and things are always complicated to pass on, uh, so so yeah. that's that's a, that's an interesting point. It's also interesting to see how these ebbs and flows continuously, and you have iconoclasm, and then it, it's not there anymore. So we are all at peace now, but then there's iconoclasm again, and then peace again. So it's it's a very very fascinating relationship, I will say, um, covering it from the point of view of Italian history. I really like to cover all these things because it just seems these these relationships that that it's fraught but but as you said neither sides wants are clear cut break for a very 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 long time and we can see why as you alluded because then it's very hard to put it back and in fact it was never put it back I mean now we are more accustomed to having a lot of denominations, Christian denominations, but that was not the case in the medieval world. Uh, uh, there really was only one church, and and then there were two. So it's it's. I mean, it's. I know it's not completely correct. There are the monophysites in the east, but they are under the uh, the caliphate. So it's it's. They're a bit in another world for 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 the Christian kingdoms. Yeah. Um then again about the papacy is maybe the question is what role it had in in the fall of Byzantium. So do you think the the schism even you know slow burning as it was uh was it a prime motivator of the Fourth Crusade uh, or even going a little bit further I know it's further from where you are for the kind of lackluster um support uh, versus the Ottomans, that the West had always with Byzantium in the last in the last century.
0: I think, um, the, I think the you know, when we, as you're sort of saying, when we talk about the schism, we mean the growing awareness of different practices in the Byzantine churches and in the Latin Western churches and the feeling amongst those who fully understood these differences that they could not be reconciled. So what do we do about that? Either they change, because we're not, you know, either they change or their heretics was basically what was said by some clergymen. So this was bubbling under the surface. Um, I think probably that it was never a prime motivation. As you will cover, I'm sure, the papacy began to change its relationship with the secular states around it in the 10th and 11th centuries, the popes began to grow in confidence in what they could ask secular princes to do in their name. And so they began to offer indulgences, forgiveness of sins for people who would carry out violence in the name of the papacy. And this is obviously what led to the Crusades and to some of the campaign's Uh, against the Spanish uh, Muslim state and, and so on and so on. And as we talked about earlier, also backing the Normans who were sort of a direct threat to Rome itself. And so the papacy began to lean towards commissioning campaigns against Byzantium during this period. And I think that that was usually done for political reasons, but uh-huh. the 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 schism the schism that was growing was a handy tool to use when trying to justify why you were supporting Norman aggression. and I think the the Fourth Crusade was more of a an accident really in, in what happened but the papacy you know once you create something like the Crusades, you're on a slippery slope to saying, anyone is a justifiable target now because if this campaign is really commissioned by uh, and supported by God, then anyone who opposes it is opposing God. And whether that's the actual logic that convinces individuals to action is less important than the principle that a successful crusade should not be opposed. And therefore, if the Byzantines are standing in our way, we're justified in, in squashing them. And so I think that the schism is under the surface of that, but I think it it was more just the way things played out that led literally to the Fourth Crusade yeah. itself. Um, I don't think the it's Pop- more
1: politics. Uh, what you're saying is more politics wrapped, maybe in a religious justification. Yeah. To summarize it,
0: I don't think the papacy wanted the Fourth Crusade to sack Constantinople,
1: for example. I uh, know that they didn't.
0: That's so true. you know what I mean. They. They did not – I'm sure they did not say to the Venetians, you know, you're justified in attacking the Byzantines, st- their capital. But they had spent centuries implying that Byzantine words were not as valuable as, as Catholic ones. So that, you know, it's an undercurrent, I would say.
1: Yeah, yeah. But also, I will say, you will cover it in future episodes – in the last centuries where basically kind of one of the condition of support from the West was always accept Rome supremacy. And that's really, that's really when I think also the the schism played that role of, of, uh, of potential uh, break between West and East to reconcile. And uh, it will, I guess, helping the Byzantines, you know it's it's not a primary interest of anyone in reality, maybe it's just an excuse not to do anything <laughs> because but but yet yet there was a handy excuse to not do anything that's that's what I'm trying to say yeah
0: well are we we move forward to the Ottoman advance yeah. um and I think part of the problem there is that crusading had gone out of fashion, the energy had gone out of crusading if the Ottomans had come sooner, then there might have been an appetite to organize a proper defense of Constantinople on behalf of Christendom. But I think by then that idea uh, was just not possible anymore. And since Byzantium by 1453 was such a weakened state, I don't think there was as much... uh, motivation to help defend it um you know western europe was strong by that point and busy fighting each other um you know britain and france said we're going to war with each other now not going to crusade and yeah i think the ottomans were not threatening loyal catholics so that that's where you come to the schism i suppose where it was easier to look the other way and say well that's a problem a long way off for other people
1: yeah. Oh. I'm telling you that because you know, as an Italian, then Italians learned how valuable that city was mm-hmm. until it was there in the following century. Where, you know, I, I tell you something that, that that's probably it's not very well known, you know, but in, in Italian there is an expression like li turchi It's like saying, you know, the the worst thing that could happen, the Turks are coming. And and there was a you get the sense in the 16th century, so beyond the scope of your podcast, that that, that was a very real threat in the in the in, you know in the in the 16th and 17th century, and and until Byzantium was conquered, that was not the case. Mm. So and then you know you you get to the way where where then finally the, the the papacy had to organize a sort of a crusade, which was the one for the Battle of Lepanto in uh, uh in uh, very important uh, for mediterranean history but but you know at that point all they could do was to uh stop the tide at best a few decades earlier they could have, they could have uh taken actions but of course nobody has the uh the the the, the you know a mirror that Tells you the future, but it's interesting yeah. to note that then it did become a very important uh, point of uh, of a foreign relationship for 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 the Catholic powers at the time, yeah. but but they didn't realize it until Byzantium was gone.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. You now, you know, one of my favorite. Uh, part of your podcast is The First Crusade. I suggest, if, if you haven't heard anything about Robin's work, just go and listen to the episodes about The First Crusades, Preparation, execution, they're just great. Um, but is there... A, okay, we know that The First Crusade started, as you very clearly explained, and maybe you can go through quickly that train of thought, started really as a, as a mission to... Help Byzantium, uh, then sold uh, to conquer Jerusalem. But probably nobody believed that they would ever get there. <laughs> but but um, but then it ended up uh, alienating. You no, know, putting another alienation between East and West. Very important. Um, is there a parallel world in your opinion where it could have happened differently? Could have gone in a way that it strengthened Byzantium without alienating uh, um, the West.
0: Yeah, I think there's always, there's always a potential alternative story. Um, Yeah. So the, the crusade was, um, coordinated well between the Pope and Alexius, the Byzantine emperor, um, all the way to the city of Antioch, um, which is on the border between Turkey and Syria today. And the Byzantines uh, at that point got the crusading army to Antioch and then kept feeding them um, from Cyprus, um, sending ships to Antioch, but withdrew their soldiers um, because it was looking pretty dire. Um, The siege lasted a couple of years and, eventually the Crusaders did take the city and understandably in a way said, well, we're not giving it to Alexius because he abandoned us. His troops weren't here. And, uh, you know, that's an argument for another time. Uh, But this led to um, ongoing conflict between the two sides. And I think even if 50 years later Antioch had returned to, Byzantine hands it's possible that the later history of crusading um, might have gone better for um, the Latins because they might have had active Byzantine support the Fourth Crusade presumably wouldn't have happened um, and you'd have had the, the Byzantine Navy being friendly and welcoming ships to Antioch and sending them on to uh, to Jerusalem. So it's possible, but there still would have been tension between the two sides, and you still imagine that would have blown up. So obviously the two sides had very different points of view on what the point of all this was. So the Byzantines thought, you know, this is all about us. We are the original Christians. We are the Romans. So as far as we're concerned, any – crusade for christianity is serving our interests there is no separation between the two and if we get the holy land back in in christian hands obviously the clergy there will be orthodox because yeah. they always have been and they should be again whereas of course the latins once they'd taken Jerusalem on their own thought it should be the catholic christianity that we have at home that's clearly the right christianity and that's obviously what should be in the churches in jerusalem so it's the two sides always looked at each other with mutual suspicion and the more you believe what you're doing is holy the harder it is to compromise with someone who's not cooperating and so yeah it's it's hard to see how the crusading era could have happened without the two sides falling out but that doesn't mean it would have led to the sack of Constantinople. I think that could have been avoided and, and uh, yeah, things could have been very different.
1: Paradoxically, it makes me think that the best thing would have been a failure of the First Crusade. And and then they would have had no reason <laughs> to fight over Antioch or Jerusalem or who's the bishop where, yeah. uh, which was a very, very... I mean, I think if you roll the dice uh, 100 times, I think 90 times or 95, you end up with the first crusade failing. So it's a very unusual thing that it did succeed. You are <laughs> the only um, crusade ever <laughs> to, to do absolutely. so. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> no, you're completely correct. And um, that's a very interesting what if. And what would the papacy, if the papacy had continued to push? christian armies but but abandoned jerusalem would they have sent them to spain or to the baltics as as eventually happened as they did eventually yeah, they So did. it's a very interesting question what would have happened if yeah. the first crusade had failed
1: so the we talked a lot about the normans and obviously one thing interesting is that in the 11th century they really seem to be to have the two strongest uh states in Western Europe, uh, England and you know, with its possessions on the continent, of course, very organized country in that sense, and, but but also Sicily, um, similar in that in in that sense of unified uh, country. So, um, why do you think they did indeed fail against uh, Alexius Comnenos, uh, Alessio Comneno for the Italians? Um, in uh in in what was really their objective because they did try several times uh, uh quite unambiguously to conquer Jeru- not jerusalem but constantinople um you know and we know that a few years later uh others succeeded so why do you think they did fail
0: mm. yeah the normans always seem to be trying to acquire the next target and so for them if they could capture the the balkan ports of byzantium they would then control the adriatic and then they've got options and so they never really they never really got to constantinople but it was always assumed that that would be where you'd go if your balkan empire succeeded in being created um <clears throat> so i think as good as the normans were they were always um trying to find an advantage. The Normans have, uh, I don't know enough about business, but I always think the Normans really lend themselves to some kind of aggressive yeah. market capitalization firm today, you know, yeah. trying to find a, a big weak company and take it over or, you know, break it up or something. And so they, you know, were taking uh, Italian troops over to the Balkans. And I think hoping that Byzantium would, would crack that you know maybe the the Byzantines would fall into civil war and they would be able to pick up easy conquests. Instead, Alexius, despite losing several battles, stayed in charge. And so what happened is the the, the Norman troops were unable to, you know, multiply. They kept dwindling while Byzantium could go back home, raise a fresh army, come back fight again, and it, it, there weren't more people in Italy signing up to go to conquer the Balkans, whereas the Romans could bring people over from Anatolia and from the islands and and recruit more people in the Balkans. So eventually the, the Byzantines just had more resources. And, um, yeah, I think as long as the Byzantines were united, the Normans were going to struggle because taking Constantinople was always – virtually impossible unless you had a navy um, famously you know the triple land walls are Im- almost impossible to climb but the the na- the, uh, sea walls
1: the sea are walls just are a single low. wall uh, yeah, yeah just so- a single wall and much less impressive so the key for byzantium was always to maintain that balance of power where they were the biggest dog in uh, navy wise uh, in the aegean which it's a good transition to the next question <laughs> because the point is at a certain point, the Byzantine thought, eh, we don't need such a strong navy after all. And and this seems to be, let's say, peculiar <laughs> because it was so important. It was their second and third wall on the sea, right? You had three walls towards the land, but your second and third is your navy. So, how that happened and why they didn't try to rebalance the power uh, versus the Western powers uh, before the Fourth Crusade.
0: I think with the Fourth Crusade specifically, the, the government had collapsed, and so the money and the you know organization wasn't there. Um, you know, thirty forty years before, under Manuel Komnenos, the navy yeah. would have been adequate to defend Constantinople, if not further out but to expand your question i think why is the navy not a bigger deal in byzantium why does tiny venice um or tiny um amalfi or you know wherever have uh, bigger navies than byzantium seems to have at times um and i i think this goes back to roman culture i think this is italy's fault um (laughs) because i think it goes all the way back to the republic um, yeah. which is the Romans don't value sailors. Um, yeah. You go through all the Roman histories and then the Byzantine histories. N- very rarely does anyone describe a sea battle or say this was the greatest admiral we've ever had. It was always armies,
1: generals. Armies, armies, armies. That yeah. that may seem very strange uh, for a Brit, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> where, Well, yeah. Where you have your admirals, on the pedestals, right?
0: Yeah, that's very true. Very true. Um, and so it's sort of a cultural snobbery because the the Roman Empire was built on the Mediterranean. As we talked about earlier, you can get from Egypt to Italy in a few weeks, and therefore the, the empire is possible. And yet the the navy is never a source of power, never a source of political um glory
1: or or pride you know it's you you don't go around constantinople beating your chest and saying i'm a sailor (laughs) exactly and this is
0: i think this is pure snobbery because it was you know and this uh is quite familiar in in britain you know aristocratic culture a gentleman earns rent from the land he owns he doesn't work so even if you are a rich merchant it's not seen as, wow, like we do today with business people. Oh, you've really rags to riches, you've earned, you've worked. It was, oh, you had to work for your money? How how undignified. Why didn't you join the army, lead an army, get rich that way, buy land, and then... Buy
1: land, and then live on your land. Exactly. exactly. And, and this is, uh, you know, it's very ironic that it, indeed it was Italy then <laughs> developed uh, uh, seafaring uh, uh, city-states. But again, that... Boils down a lot on being very small, with without a real land uh, to fall back on. So you know, if you if you know if you've been to Venice, I imagine you know how it is. And they didn't control for most of their history. They only controlled the marshes around Venice. They didn't even they didn't go inland uh, very much. Eventually they did, but but for many centuries they didn't. If you go to Genoa, um, you know you have mountains r- right behind the city. There's nothing. Uh, there's no land in that sense. I mean, there is land, but it's all completely mountainous, in you know, you know Cinque Terre style. Uh, so, so those cities, they really, if they w- if they were part of a bigger state, they could, of course interact with the other parts of the bigger state but when they became independent then they had to live off the sea uh, and they became uh, good at it uh, also they imagine they had to clear uh, uh, the the western mediterranean sea from saracens that were dominant in in the high middle ages so they had also to get good at sea battle yeah so so it i can see how that's kind of a knowledge that's hard to build in in Byzantium, and also you' of course all you had all these merchants that could be turned into captains of as it always the case they could turn into captains of the navy exactly
0: <laughs> well this so this is the thing so obviously Byzantium did have lots of ships and lots of people who were independent merchants, but they were not centralized and given political support as the Italian maritime states did. And as you say, when war was threatening, the government would round up the merchants and say, okay, we're requisitioning your crew and your ship and we'll build new ones. And now we have a fleet for what we need it for, but we won't maintain that fleet because we're spending all that money on the army. So when the danger disperses, the fleet disperses. And so what happens in 1204, I think is the, because politics has collapsed and Civil War is brewing and all this, no one has the money to repair the Navy. So you are left saying, well, why didn't they have this big centralized Navy? Well, that would have been very expensive and uh, inevitably a source of political um a threat you know if you kept keep a big navy in the harbor then surely the admiral is going to seize the throne at some point so you don't want them <laughs> hanging around so yeah
1: also that also mm. that you already have enough actors with the generals <laughs> Exactly. um so this is a this is a very uh peculiar question so after studying so much byzantine history in, during the middle ages do you think you understand better also Italian history now?
0: I mean, I obviously know more than I did and uh, much more than I would if I, you know, just been a casual <laughs> reader of Byzantine history. Um, but I think as we've already talked about, if you don't study it in order in and in detail, you don't see the roads that could have yeah. been taken. So, I know much less about Italian history than you just by virtue of that. Like I've studied in detail Constantinople's point of view about Italy, but not the Italian point of view. So yeah, I think when you do a project like yours, you really do become an expert on what could and couldn't have been. And then I can't claim that for Italy. Um, I have learned a couple of things. Um, that I found really interesting about the Byzantine legacy in Italy. Um, mm-hmm. One was about the mafia, and one was about malaria. So I like, uh, <laughs> I like okay, these. Okay, okay. Two, uh, please. Very <laughs> random points, and obviously this is—they're not sort of um, great insights. But the the mafia one is just that you know someone pointed out if you look at a map of mafia activity in the last century and you compare that map with a map of Byzantine control of Italy in the 8th century or whatever, there is a lot of correlation. And that's not a big surprise, I imagine, to Italians who know the history, obviously, of the south and the north yeah. being very divided and so on. But perhaps more interesting was, um, I, I, can, I can provide a link to this, um, but there, there's an inherited blood disorder that some people in Italy have that is connected to defending yourself from malaria. And again, if you look at the map of where these people are who have this inherited um, effect, they live in Ravenna and in the South, like almost exclusively. And so it looks like this blood disorder that you can detect in modern people was developed during Byzantine times, that people from Constantinople were bringing, you know, their malaria-changed DNA to Italy, interacting with people and it wasn't spreading into Lombard controlled areas. And that's like a really interesting thing that I would never have thought there'd be a sort of Byzantine legacy in Italy.
1: Um, I can tell you a a couple mm, more things. Yeah. So the first one is there is a region in northern Italy called Emilia Romagna, where Emilia comes, of course, from the Via Emilia, one of the most important uh, Roman roads connecting Rimini, with uh, Piacenza, so going towards the north. Um, and this was very important at the time because it connected to the Flaminia that went down to Rome. Uh, but Romagna sounds like Romania, no? like the land of the Romans. But they're not the ancient Romans. It's uh, the land of the Romans because that's the exarchate. So Romagna is the actual Exarchate. So it's the land of the Romans in that sense. And there is a, and there is a big divide within between, between this region, between these two areas that really feels like two different regions still today. And the line falls almost exactly at the border between the Exarchate and the Lombard states. So that's kind of uh, one little piece of information. And another one... Is the uh, that there is still Greek speaking communities in southern Italy, and they are unsurprisingly in the very southernmost part of Apulia, you know, towards Greece, and in the very southernmost part of Calabria, going towards Sicily. Not in Sicily. I mean, there's a couple of small areas in Sicily, but most most of these Greek speakers are there. And of course, if you ask a local they will tell you that it's all because of the Magna Grecia so the you know the ancient um, uh, greeks colonization in you know pre-roman times mm. however linguists tend to disagree and it seems like l- really those areas were latinized during the roman empire you know the the classical roman empire but then they became um, uh, Greek speaking during the Byzantine, uh, domination. So that's another, uh, uh leftover from, mm. from Byzantium. And I'm sure if you think about, we think about it, we will find, more. ah, there's another one. I told <laughs> you another one. Sardinia, uh, had a history of, um, of Giudicati. Giudicati were basically this, um, that nobody knows where they come from but they were like four states that developed quite organized for high middle ages they had kind of a sort of parliament and they were in the four main areas of the of the island as much as we can understand Sardinia you know was always part of the Byzantine empire as other parts of the empire then became probably too far to reach. Nobody showed up ever. But before Judicati uh, comes from Judicus, from, from Judge, basically, from what we can understand, they were Byzantine officials that then, you know, when nobody showed up to a certain point said, okay, I guess we are independent now. and And that really influenced the history of Sardinia, uh, an island that is, not usually connected to Byzantium so much. Yeah. Really so, interesting. <laughs> a, few, a few more things. Mm. Uh, but I'm sure if we thought about it, we'll find another, a few <laughs> others. Um, so I, I guess the follow-up question is, is there anything in Italian history that you would have liked to know more? You, didn't, you never get to learn. Because, because it's very complex. It's not like... In a way, I'm kind of envious of English or French history. You have this monarch, then you have this monarch, and then you have this monarch, and then you have this monarch. <laughs> that, that's a, that's a. I know it's, there's a lot of complexity there, make no mistake, mm. but it is a unified history where you can make one history. So it's a very complex history, the post-Roman Italy. Um, is there something you would, would would have liked to know more if you had the time, let's say?
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the thing that occurred to me, because I, the one thing I hear a lot about is the papacy through what I study. And often I, you know, uh, the last time Byzantium spoke to the Pope, it was this Pope, but there's been two since him, and now it's a new one. And I always just read very brief summaries of w- what happened in Rome, and often the politics seems quite venal you know, did this family and this family and the killing each other. And I'd be very interested to know more about, and of course we probably don't know, but what did local people think? I mean, literally people in Rome about the Pope being God's vicar on earth, chosen by God, but but seeing for their own eyes, the very unchristian acts being done by their local aristocrats to secure power. and. Yeah, I just, given men did go and die, you know, on crusade for ideals, it makes me wonder how people kind of on the ground saw the office of the papacy itself. Yeah, Um, That I'd be very, very interested in.
1: I can tell you from my small experience that Romans, even today, (laughs) have a very peculiar relationship with the papacy. So even today they know more, I mean, they know people in Korea, you know, they know people there. They, yeah, So it's very difficult to explain how they can be completely cynical about uh, the institution. But when the Pope speaks from the pulpit, he is the Pope. Mm. And... And, and that's very you have a very good point there. It's very hard to explain. I'm not Roman myself, but I see it. And I, I will say it could be extended to Italians in general mm. uh, to a point. Uh, but, but specifically Romans, as you were saying, they really have a very first hand you know it's the guy that speaks every week from yeah. the balcony. you can walk there and go and listen. Uh, so ha- they have a very intimate and they know people and know people and those people. So, but yet they have this separation. They could, they could talk to you like for three hours about, uh, you know, whatever went on. Yeah. <laughs> it's terrible. But then uh, when it's the pulpit is the Pope. <laughs> anyway, generalization. Of course, there's <laughs> plenty of people that don't feel like that, but I'm just making a generalization. Yes. Um, so, Last question, and you see these questions, are, I go a bit more in Italy because I want, you know, to, to see, w- you know, what pieces uh, sticks, you know, as we said, it's never the most important relationship, but it's, it's always there. So yeah. is, is there a, a character in, in Italian medieval history that you have encountered uh, that really attracted you or that, that really you thought, ah, This this is an interesting story?
0: Yeah, I mean, it may be a predictable answer.
1: I think I know the answer. <laughs> oh
0: well, I don't. I mean, the person I thought of. Let's was see. Pope Gregory the Seventh.
1: Ah no! Well, well then, then. Who did you, know. you Who did you think? Well, I thought about the you know, uh, you know, a, a Norman, you know, the Norman king, you know, Bohemond, maybe, uh, from, from from from, you know, I mean, he's not hard. He's not Italian in that sense. Yes. but I was saying from Italy. So was, that's true.
0: Um, no, well, I, Pope Gregory the Seventh. Uh, so this is 11th century again. Is and he's famous uh, in kind of general European history for yeah, confrontation course. with uh, Henry the Fourth, the German Emperor. But he was a key driver behind the Crusades. That uh, he was very involved in papal reform and mm-hmm. was very aggressive in proposing military campaigns that the papacy would direct including in theory campaigns that he would go on himself um yeah. and he went from kind of suggesting the first crusade long before the first crusade actually happened like we'll go to we'll go to anatolia we'll we'll clear the turks out and then we'll go to jerusalem and then a few years later he was saying no no we'll attack byzantium instead like we'll we'll support robert giscard so a very ambitious person and a very remarkable character i think and and a bit like justinian it sounds like someone who drove the papacy in a particular direction that it yeah. might not have gone there might yeah. be no first crusade without his example so yeah he he strikes me as a fascinating person
1: yeah and it's you know we know where pap- the papacy was leading to in the you know in the in the late middle ages but that was not a clear fact it, it did not have that authority in the tenth century. absolutely did not have that kind of authority it had the prestige, but not that that kind of authority, like moving an entire continent around it. Um, and you start seeing that really with Gregory the seventh, and he's such a pivotal figure in general, about as you said, in general about European history, but specifically interesting his role in that sense in preparing the ground. I guess, as you said, both for the First and the Fourth Crusade, from the look of it. <laughs>
0: yeah, absolutely.
1: Well, uh, Robin, it has been really a pleasure. And I'm sure sooner or later there will be other uh, opportunities to talk about uh, how these two histories intersect in so many ways. But for now, I'd really like to thank you for, for your time uh, uh, with me, I say after an hour and and fifteen minutes, it starts being a, a kidnapping. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I really, really thank you for your time and uh, and 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 keep up the good work. We want to see all the way to fourteen fifty three.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you for having me and for all the kind words. Congratulations on your podcast and the book. And I hope you will be. Uh, all the way to 2021 in the 50 years time of
1: podcasting. Yeah, that's, a, you know, I have a lot of listeners that start making calculations and saying, hey, it took you 100 episodes to do 300 years. So,
0: And as you say, you don't have kings of Italy to just roll one into the next.
1: You've got yeah, to cover one, every bit. It's, it, you know, it gets really complex. In fact, the second question, the second most common question is, how are you going to deal with, with Italy in the 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th century, where it becomes really a mess. So, yeah, I'll see where I get there. <laughs> that's good. Good attitude. That's a, that's a good attitude, right? Definitely. Uh, I think every podcaster has the same attitude, more yeah, Definitely. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much, Robin, and uh, and have a good evening. Thank you.